Well, this morning I, I, I do want to um, invite you to be in prayer for Waterbrook. And on June, the, June, <laughs> I don't know where June came from, longing for summer, February, <laughs> I'm just leaping ahead. On February the 21st, we're going to have a congregational uh, night of prayer, and we want to invite all of you to come and pray with us at 7 o'clock on the 21st, so put that in your calendar. But we're also asking you to pray for the church over the month of February and beyond. And uh, I am going to use the text that we're in to give you things to pray about for Waterbrook as you're praying for the church and thinking. We are here in our study of Ephesians under the providence of God. And um, I want you to look at the first line in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to Paul's ambition uh, as he writes this uh, rich section. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I want you just to think about that. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called. That's a high calling, isn't it? That's a holy calling. That's a holy ambition to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And it begs the question, what is the calling to which we've been called? And Paul's been making that clear in Ephesians. Just look back in chapter 2 with me um, to what Paul says the church is. Chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You heard him talk about the apostles and prophets in the text that Gabe just read. Uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I don't think you can give a more holy description of the church than we are the temple of God. And as the temple of God, God indwells us by the Spirit, and we want God to indwell us by the Holy Spirit. That's our calling. And you can almost stop right off the bat and go, well, that's, like, that's aiming too high. And it would be aiming too high if it depends on us. But before we even get into chapter 4, I want to remind you of chapter 3, how it ends. Look at chapter 3 at the end when Paul says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Aren't you glad for that line? This is not about what we're able to do. This is about what God has purpose to do. What God has called us to do, as I read in the benediction at the beginning, faithful is he who calls you, and what? He will do it. Listen again to what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says that's God's ambition, not ours. That's God's plan, not ours. That's God's doing, and it's by God's power. You know, you could look at this and say, God could be glorified in Christ Jesus. And we go, of course. But it doesn't say just Christ Jesus. It's the head and the body. Christ be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. 
And so as we're praying, we're praying in light of the impossible. We're praying in light of the impossible made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God, to his glory. It's to God's glory that this can happen. And so as we go into chapter 4 and we ask, how shall we think about what the church is? How are we to pursue this calling to which we've been called in God? We have to pray to God, and that's what we're doing over the next month. God, you do this in us. You do this in us. And so even though chapter 4 is not written as a prayer, I'm going to ask you to pray the principles that are in chapter 4. How do we pray? And if you listen to Paul as he's talking, he'll say in chapter 4, 1 to 16, we ought to pray for unity. He describes that. In chapter 4, verse 17, into chapter 5, verse 19, maybe even a little further, the apostle Paul prays for purity. Unity and purity shape the church so if we're going to have unity let's start there 1 to 16 how should we pray and the first thing I want to say is we have to pray for our hearts the first starting point is not praying broadly but personally we need to pray over our own hearts that we would have the heart of Christ towards one another look at verse 2 when he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we called, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These descriptions are heart prayers that each of us need to pray. Unity doesn't happen until conformity personally in my heart to Christ happens. And you can talk about doctrine, which he will talk about. You can talk about ministry and gifts and all of that, which he'll talk about. But he starts out with our hearts. And he says, you should have the heart that Christ had. That's what he's saying here. This is similar to Paul in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so let's start with praying for humility. That's what I'm asking. In fact, what I want to say is, if you don't pray for this, don't pray for the rest. Let's start out here. And the rest, the rest follows. But the first thing that I want us to see that we are to pray for is humility. And, in, in, and we're coming to communion today, and if there's anything that points to humility, it's the Son of God taking on our humanity. Humility is a willingness to take on the role of a servant for the good of others. So in Philippians chapter 2, you remember when Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the apostle Paul says, um, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So humility on one hand says, this isn't about my glory, it's about his glory. It's not about my story, it's about his story. Right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's not my will be done, but thy will be done. You pray, God, do I really want what you want? So you're praying for nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I mean, when we come to the communion table this morning, can you imagine the humiliation that Jesus faced for us? That's what we're to be looking at. A grave humbling of, his, of himself at the will of his Father, this, this humiliation that he endured. Paul says kind of a unique thing, quoting from the Old Testament, he who ascended first descended humility is descending under the will of God taking the role of a servant 
We're called to humility. We're called in, I'm going to use the word meekness. In the ESV it says, with all humility and gentleness. But the word here is the word that's used in the New Testament for meekness. I like meekness because as you know, meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is the strength and determination to return good for evil. It's, it's a reactionary word. How do I respond when I'm wronged? How do I respond in a world of unrighteousness? How do I respond in my heart? And we are to pray over the next month, God, give me meekness where my response to whatever's going around is having your glory and the good of the church in mind, not my determination to right everything. I mean, ministry's hard. Brokenness happens in this world. Injuries come. The church is never built. If Jesus was reactionary and self-protective, there would be no church. And and Peter picks up in 1 Peter that even though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Wasn't reactionary. I just want you to pray about that. Pray that God would build that into all of us. Pray that for us as leaders. Pray that for you as individuals in the church. Pray it in your own heart that there would be meekness in the church. Patience. He says patience. That word translated by some, um, macrothumia, means to suffer long. Oh, the, the building of the church is a long work. The history of the church has been a roller because the, the story of the New Testament is one of ups and downs and all of that. But long suffering is a willingness to, to hang in there when it hurts, when it costs, to endure. Pray, God, would you give me that kind of long-suffering, macrothumia, the Greek says, the, the patience to linger even when it's costly. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Aren't you glad that God's patient? How much he has endured as a father towards us that we would never endure for one another. The Apostle Paul says that he was actually saved to make the point of God's patience. Listen to 1 Timothy 1.16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul said, God chose me to show you that when you looked at him and said, did God possibly now forgive me after all I've done? You go, well, he forgave Paul. And if he forgave Paul, certainly he must be willing to forgive sinners like me. And so we're praying that we might have that kind of patience. Uh, Christ-like forbearance. He's using these words. Notice all these words assume it's going to be difficult in our relationships. These aren't ease and this isn't casualness, but it's forbearance. The ability to tolerate differences in character, maturity, and pace of development. That's, that's the thing. God doesn't sanctify us all at the same pace. My um, granddaughter, Lily, she's five and she's starting to read. She's a determined little girl. <laughs> so she wants to read and as she's 
um, been reading, she'd been reading the Bible. So she said to Corey, her older sister, Corey, will you sit with me while I read? Don't tell me the words, I want to read. And so um, my daughter Kathy said that um, about an hour later, Corey comes, or, or uh, Lily comes into the room looking at mom, going, Mom, can you read with me? Corey says, I can't do this for another second. <laughs> can't do this for another second. Thank God, God never says to us, I can't do this for another second. But we're all at different places. God's working on separate things. We need to pray that God would help us endure, have forbearance, um, diligence. Notice what he says here Bearing, or e, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That word eager has not just kind of an emotional level, but an emotional determination. Being diligent to pursue the unity of the Spirit, to maintain the unity. We're not creating unity, we're maintaining it. It takes effort and diligence and, and purposefulness. So let me just ask you this question. Would you pray for Waterbrook, for yourself, would you pray that God would put these attributes in your heart and in my heart? I'll tell you this, he'll give you opportunity to practice. Uh, soon. Uh, very soon. And thank God he does. But thank God he doesn't live, leave it to ourselves. So first of all, I want us to pray per, uh, personally. Secondly, I want you to pray theologically. And when I say pray theologically, I don't mean airy-fairy kind of theological conceptual ideas. I want you, the, all theology means is the knowledge of God. I want you to look at the church the way God looks at the church. Pray that you can see the church the way God sees the church. So pray, this is what I want, for a deep confessional clarity about the Trinity. And that's, it might sound different, but you and I need to see the Trinity is the one who has made the church and sustains the church and builds the church, right? The Trinity does that. Listen to what Paul says in verse four. There is one body and what? One spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. When Paul writes about, the, uh, about unity, he goes to the ultimate unity, which is the triunity. The one who has been united from all eternity and the one who is now at work building his church. Listen to John Stott on this. He says, and we need to understand this, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. You need, you need to understand that the church is God's creation. It's God's body. It'll be held together by him. I love that line. The unity of the church is as indestructible as unity of God. It is no more possible to split the church than it is to split the Godhead. Now that goes against everything in our Western culture that we think, but the true church always belongs to God. And it's always his. And in his eyes, it's always one. Is that helpful? So pray for... Uh, a God-centered Trinitarian view of the church. And so what I mean by that is, uh, look at this, the body has one spirit. He says there's one body with one spirit. The Bible tells us that we are all given the Holy Spirit, but the, the picture of the temple is the Holy Spirit's been given to the church. 
There's one body that possesses the Holy Spirit and the Spirit indwells the church. One body, one church. Then notice what he says after that. He says, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We have been called to a hope, and where's that hope? Through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The confession of the church is he is what? He is Lord. That's settled. That's certain. That's where he reigns. And so what we're to say is this. We have one hope. What's our hope? Our hope is in the risen Lord, the reigning Lord. We have this call in Scripture to humble ourselves and come to that Lord. He says, there is one faith. Who's the, who's the one we trust? Jesus who has won the victory. There's one baptism. And, and, and Paul writes it this extensively. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized into Christ. It's not theoretical and conceptual. That's the reality. Even if you're living in sin, he says in Romans 6, you have to remember you have died to sin and been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been joined with him in his baptism. These are the realities that we often don't feel or think or feel like we experience, but they're true in the Trinity. And because they're true in the Trinity, they're true for us. Any amens? I want you to think. Consider that. So here's, here's what we're supposed to do in this passage. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has made us hit God's body. Praise God for the Son who's given us hope, who's called us to Himself, who's granted to us a place and a union with God that cannot be taken away. And praise God for the Father, he says here, because he's the Father who's the Father of all, Lord over all. You and I have the same Father. And he's adopted us into his family. He doesn't look at us differently. He doesn't look at us just separately. He sees you as an individual, but he have been given, we've been given access together. And so as we pray for the unity of Waterbrook, as we pray for the unity of the church, pray that we might see the church the way God sees the church. And that we might believe with hope that this is true. Last thing I want you to see, which is this rich text of Scripture, is we need to pray congregationally. He goes into this picture of what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When we do covenant partner classes, uh, we just started doing, we do spiritual gifts inventories because this is what we believe. If you're a Christian, you have a gift. God's given you spiritual gifts and you are made part of the body. But the picture that Paul uses here is of Jesus being the warrior king who's gone to battle against his enemies and having won the victory, he rides back into the city triumphantly. He's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 68. And that text where he says in verse 8, Therefore, when he ascended on high, he, held, he led a, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, is from Psalm 68. And I want you to look at Psalm 68, 17 to 19, where this is quoted from, because it's a pic picture of the Messiah coming in victory. It says, The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. 
that the Lord may dwell there. And I, I added this line, which he doesn't quote, but it's part of the text. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And so in Psalm 68, the king comes in triumphant, and behind him he has held all the captives of his victory. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. He has won the victory, and he has all the, all the rewards, all the triumphs, all the trophies, all the treasures of his victory, and then he distributes them. In those days, the king would honor people who did well in the battle. But here we have in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit by God has given us gifts so that we might be the church. The victory's already won. And Christ has given us these gifts so that we might stand together. And so I have a little chart here in the text just to make it, um, I think it hopefully makes it a little clearer how the text unfolds. What Paul does is say that in giving gifts, uh, he, he emphasizes the gifts of proclamation, uh, the word of God. And then he says the impact of the word of God and the spirit of God is personal restoration in the lives of God's people and when we are restored by the power of the spirit through the word of God then we begin to minister to one another so collectively we become more mature and complete able to stand and when that begins to happen the end result is not there we're done we're finished we're perfect but we end up in an environment of mutual edification which is we're always caring for one another always encouraging always building each other up till we get home see that pattern let me just show it to you in the text and so when Jesus comes with his gifts, the first thing he says in verse 11, which we heard a little bit of in chapter 2, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And it's interesting, there are many gifts. In Corinthians, he'll talk about other gifts. But here he talks about the gifts of apostolic authority and prophecy where the word is given. And he gives us the word, and that word in the Old Testament, when the word was given, the law was given, the prophets would bring application to how they were living out that law or how they were not living out that law and how to live. And now in Paul's Acts chapter 2, God has brought the word of God, brought application to the church through the apostles, Paul being one of the apostles. And as that ministry has come, he says he's also given us evangelists. So that word is taken to those who don't know Christ. And I would say to you today, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ come to Christ today he died for you he rose from the dead he's victorious he'll never leave you nor forsake you and he's given pastors and teachers but that's not just to end there that's with the purpose of creating a community where we build one another up in the faith so we pray, this is what I want you to pray for. First of all, pray for that. Pray for the faithful proclamation of the word. But secondly, pray for the progressive and collective, and I use this word uh, for a reason, the equipping and restoration of all God's people for the ministry for one another. Listen to what he says of why he gave those gifts. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of service for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of God to mature manhood. That phrase, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that word that's used in the Greek, katartismos, often means to bind a broken wound. 
And so listen to Sinclair Ferguson as he explains the meaning of the verb here. He says, the verb to equip was used in the medical world of restoring broken limbs. In the New Testament, it's used in Matthew 4.21 to describe the fishermen disciples getting their nets ready, cleaned and repaired with a view to the night's, next night's fishing. Similarly, these varied ministries of God's word restore lives to spiritual health and strength and prepare them for future service. Thus, the fellowship where the word of God is expounded and applied in the power of the spirit becomes a hospital for the sick and a gymnasium to build up spiritual strength and stamina. So you ever had to go for rehab? Rehab has that process of healing and strengthening. Recovery and empowerment to live your life. If you've ever done rehab, that's what it is. In a sense, the word of God is to bring broken people to rehab through the gospel, showing them where your healing comes in Jesus Christ, where your strength comes, and to strengthen them to live for God. Now, again, we need to pray for that, that the word of God would bring healing and restoration and strengthening to God's people, because here's what God does. He uses your brokenness. You still have the scar, or you had the surgery, you still have the wound, where it was there, but now you come and say, but this is how I got better. You share the word of God, you share the truth of God, you share the character of God, the works of God. You talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word that ministered to you. Haven't you found this? I find this all the time. I will be reading something where God in the word will be ministering to some part of my brokenness, some part of my struggle, some part of my weakness, and he'll put somebody within my path that day or the next day who needs the exact same word. And so we begin to share how God has met us in our brokenness, ministered to us in our weakness and struggle. And so I want you to pray for that. Pray for the progressive and collective equipping and restoration of God's people for the work of ministry to one another through the instrumentation of the word. Pray for that. And then out of that, pray for increasing maturity, Christ-likeness, and stability. That's where he says, when that happens, until, verse 13, we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Can you imagine that? God is building us up in Christ. He is growing us up. It'll take our whole lives, friends. It'll take our whole lives. But it is progressive and it's real. And one day when we see him, we'll be like him. But he is calling us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're fighting for each other in a world where we're lied to, where we're deceived, we're enticed by sin, all of those things. And we want each other to get stability. That's somebody in our first service this morning who was walking out with a boot. They got a new bed and, of course, the bed has new bedposts in the middle of the night broke their toe. Love that. I walk like a duck, so that's like my Achilles toe. <laughs> you know. um, and, and there are dangers. You know, we got this, our little grandson, Rowan, is learning to walk. And in Honduras, all they have is concrete and ceramic tiles and hard coffee tables. And I watch Rowie cross in the room. He's thrilled. But if you're a parent and you've watched the child learning to walk, you're, you're watching for every sharp corner and every concrete piece and even the floor. You know? And what is being said here is we live in, we've got to help each other get past the stage 
of wobbling when every wind blows, when every cultural doctrine goes by, when every enticement, every religious idea that if you have enough faith, it'll just go like this. We need to give each other the strength and the stability to resist sin. That's what we're called to pray for, and I want you to pray for that. Pray not only that we would minister to one another and that we'd be restored and healed, but that we would grow up into maturity so that, and this is the kind of the, 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 the pinnacle of the text, so that we might be a community where this goes on all the time. The goal here is mutual edification, and, and it, it's a culture and a community where we mutually edify one another, build one another up, and help us to be conformed to Christ. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning and craftiness of schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly. Got that? Each of us working properly, each of us ministering effectively and meaningfully, that the body grows and builds itself up in what? In love. To be a community that builds each other up. To be a community that encourages each other. To be a community that um, forgives and restores and heals and grows. That's the community that the church is to be till Jesus comes back again. Whose idea is this? It's God's. Whose church is this? It's God. Whose plan is this? It's God. Whose power is this? It's God's. But now to him who is able to do increasingly and abundantly beyond anything we ask or imagine in the church and in Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. Do you believe he'll do it? It's his church. And if, if you have any question, we're coming to the communion table. God will spare no expense to make us his people, to make us mature, to prepare us for eternity. One day we'll be perfect, but we need to pray that God to help us, right? So as you're praying for Waterbrook, that's what I'm asking. You're praying for the leadership, that's what I'm asking. You're praying for the future, for a mission, for a ministry, that's what God's asking. doesn't matter that I'm asking it. That's what God's word is asking. And we ought to have confidence when we come to the table that if, my favorite verse in the Bible, Romans eight thirty two: if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? God is in this, folks. Before, in the middle, and at the end. He is always for us. So we're gonna take communion. And I wanna do a couple things when we come to take communion. One, as we're hearing this, if you're a believer, you trust in Jesus, celebrate his faithfulness. Trust in his promises. Uh, as you take the bread and drink the cup, remind yourself that he's for you. And if he's for you, he won't be against you. If you have sin you need to confess, confess now. If you have things you need to get right with God, get right with God now. But also let me say this. If you're not a believer, don't take communion. But hear from me a welcome to come to Jesus today. Because he's building his church and the gates, the Bible says gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will not give up on you. 
Trust in him. Come to him. Flee to him. He spent his blood for you. You can have him. You can be part of his family. You can have him as your Lord, your Father. You can have the power of the Spirit. All of those things you can have today. So come to Jesus today. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.